In nature, fire is both destroyer and creator. For some people, your family history is the same. For today's episode, we watched Denis Villeneuve's 2010 film, Incendie. Welcome to Cinematics. I'm Ryan. And I'm Mike. Yeah, so today we're talking about Denis Villeneuve's 2010 movie, Incendie. And before I get into this, I'm going to just throw this disclaimer out there. We're going to do our best throughout to pronounce these names. Um, there's a lot of names that are foreign to our language, and we'll, we'll do our best, but we might butcher them. So apologies in advance if we do. Um, but it was uh, based on a play written by Wajdi Muawad, who is a uh, Quebecois Lebanese Canadian. Uh, and the screenplay has credits written between uh, Denis Villeneuve and Valerie Beauregard Champagne, starring Lubna Azabal, Melissa Desormeaux Poulain, Maxime Godet, and Rémi Girard. It was shot by Andre Turpin for $6,800,000 in Jordan. And it was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film and nominated as well for 10 Canadian Film Awards and won eight of those nominations. Uh, In classic Canadian cinema style, it has producer credits given to the CBC. It has producer credits given to the Quebec Film Board and also Telefilm, um, which, for those of you who don't know, Telefilm is essentially a crown corporation run by the Canadian government that offers grants... uh, funding options it does various courses in education they do a lot of canadian cinema marketing at like various film markets around the world and film festivals they have booths and the canadian pavilion they set up things like that um working on engagement initiatives industry engagement initiatives things like that to support and grow local canadian cinema so they're a, a pretty cool little organization that does a lot of really great things for our uh film community so mike uh why are we watching this movie yeah, so this is the second in our series of Canadian films. Uh, so every third week of the month, we we produce a podcast about Can- a Canadian film. Uh, the, the first one we did was Sweet Hereafter. And essentially, when we were making lists, Sweet Hereafter was near the top of both of our lists, but partly probably because of its Oscar recognition. And so when I started thinking quickly of other films, the Oscar-recognized ones came to my head. So this and Barbarian Invasions and stuff like that. And so this was a film I hadn't seen until doing this podcast, but I had been meaning to see since it came out in 2010. I've owned it since shortly thereafter. <laughs> uh, so it's really sad that it took me, you know, 11 years to see this movie. Um, but I'm very glad I finally did because it's amazing. And I knew it was going to be amazing because it uh, it's directed by one of my favorite directors working at the moment, Denis Villeneuve. And topically I, uh, um, is probably why it took me so long to get to this. Because uh, as you, you've probably heard in a few of my contextual pieces uh, in previous episodes, I um, sometimes avoid movies that are given the description of dark or heavy or mm-hmm. difficult or troubling, uh, these type of th- things. And so while I knew this was going to be a masterpiece and a great piece of uh, art, I it took me so long to come to this movie partly because people who had seen it prior to me seeing it described it in such a way and it is all of those things but yeah sometimes you really gotta just suck it up and watch these movies mike that's what i'm telling my future (laughs) self 
um because man oh man did i miss uh did i miss a really good piece of art in my life uh and i could have had it sooner and now, now i've i've had 11 more years to wait and uh but i'll, I'll i will watch jumping way ahead to the end of the thing i am gonna, go. like this is something i'll revisit i think not often but like every uh, a certain time period apart kind of thing because i think as i grow and mature as a human i think the message of this film will continue to grow with me i think a little bit so uh what about yourself ryan uh what context did you bring to this movie Fun fact, uh, I had also not seen it before this show, which I don't know if that makes it the first movie we've done that neither of us have watched, but I think it does. And I guess for me, it was, I, I, I became aware of Denis Villeneuve when he made Arrival. It was the first time I'd heard about him, and I know it wasn't his first big movie, like Sicario was before that, and this one, and, and uh, Prisoners also had like a pretty wide reach. But Arrival was the first I'd heard of his, and I watched it, and it floored me, and then I saw that he was doing the Blade Runner 2049, so I watched that, and it floored me, and then I heard about the the Dune remake that I'm super stoked for. But just having watched those two movies, I was ready to call him my, like, my favorite director. Uh, or at least, if not my favorite, he is one of the most inspirational to me in the sense that he seems to find in his stories interesting things that I also would focus on when I when I do my writing or when I think about the way I would make movies. And the kind of films that he makes are the kind of ones that I see myself being interested in making. So I, uh, am, he inspires me very much in that way. And having watched this, it only just reaffirms that even more. Yeah, I, I would just add that, like, I think part, part of both your and I's comfort in his filmmaking and our attraction to it, I think, comes a bit from bo you and I both have done an English literature degree. And so to a certain extent, language is important to both of us and the use of language. And that's a very big theme to De Denny. Um, Arrival being like a movie all about language. Yeah, yeah. And, and how much language shapes everything about our culture. And Denny growing up in Quebec where they mandated French language to be used because to lose their language is to lose their culture. So they uh, instituted it, essentially made it a permanent fixture um but yeah and in this movie the same there's language barriers all through the film um and people have difficulty understanding each other and having to use interpreters and what that means and how that shifts things um i think that 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 theme in his films is something that i think attracts both you and i to it uh, uh, with a plethora of other stuff as well yeah yeah i would definitely agree um i i just i connect very very strongly and very easily with his movies everyone that i've watched and this is this will have been the oldest of his movies that i've watched so far but there's a list of ones that i um, have been trying to track down for a while now and will with extra effort continue to try and track them down because uh this was one of those movies that i like i saw he directed it i read the description and the synopsis was didn't inspire me that much i i don't seek out fiction set in normal world scenarios as much i'm <laughs> i i know it sounds weird but like when i read the descriptions of movies unless it's like just unless it's describing something that is supernatural or or beyond just normal life i find that i'm it catches my attention less so that was one of the reasons that i think i was like oh it's like it's him so it's probably going to be a good movie but i also was not as excited necessarily but after having watched it i was like if he can make a movie like this which 
is a great story and all of that, but usually not the sort of thing that hooks me as much. I, I obviously the rest of his movies are going to do that too. So, yeah, I, I I have seen his two previous pieces to this. I saw Maelstrom, his two thousand film, and then his two thousand nine film Polytechnique. Um, that one, um, I think you can see his growth as a filmmaker each film a little bit, but he he did come out of the like the artistic womb pretty f- well formed kind of thing <laughs> like he's it's uh uh polytechnique was a very very affecting movie to me and it's uh, it's about uh, the montreal massacre that that claimed i think 13 women's lives and um and until the recent nova scotia murder thing spree from two years ago or a year ago now or whatever i think it was the biggest mass mur- single murder thing in canadian history and obviously very affecting and it's the one that canadian tragedies always get compared to yeah yeah and and he did a he handled that movie i thought with such grace and elegance and or that topic in that movie and uh it's uh, to me i think it should be required viewing for like even you know kid like high school kids growing up in canada it's that especially especially if we're talking about those things in school and we should be um I think that movie's brilliant, and um, yeah. Also, the the person who plays the killer, who we would now think of as like an incel person uh, by modern parlance, is um, is uh, Maxime Godet, who plays the twin. Oh sign yeah, yeah. In okay, film. okay. He was he was he was he was really good in this. Although I'm something about his character kind of bumped on me a couple of times. Maybe we'll get to that when we get down to the story discussion. Um, but yeah, so that's sort of my context to that. And I'm, I'm super stoked to get into this, I think, cause, uh, again, favorite director and just a phenomenal, phenomenal film. So, yeah. And just for the, the listeners, I just wanted to run down some of, uh, Denny's other movies that you failed to mention. And there's really only two maybe, but, uh, yeah. So he started out with Maelstrom, which is a, um, a really good movie, but I, to be honest, I can't remember the plot. <laughs> but I, I remember scenes and I remember frames very vividly in my head, but I can't remember the context in which they exist because it was I saw that movie 13, 14 years ago kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really want to see it again, but it's incredibly difficult to find. Uh, yeah, and I think I told you once that I looked for it online to buy it and it was like 40 something dollars for an, a used DVD. Oh, yeah, yeah. Insane. Uh, and then Polytechnique, and then this movie in Sandy, and then he did, and then he started doing English language, more what people would describe as Hollywood features, but they they were still considered independent, which was Prisoners and Enemy. He did two of the both of those movies in one year, uh, and then Sicario, Arrival, Blade Runner twenty forty nine, Dune, and he apparently is attached to do Cleopatra in the future as well. Oh, interesting. Um, but anyway. Uh, those all of those movies like the when i was asked in film school and most of my life who my favorite director was it's been one of two answers it's been billy wilder or it's been joel and ethan cohen and both valid you know choices (laughs) yeah and very and denny has like he got on that list but was low on that list just because he didn't have the um the filmography that those other directors have that i've watched but every time he has a new movie coming out um i i 
it's one to go see. And then once I see it, I'm just in awe of his talent. And in that list, I don't think there's a miss. I would recommend every one of those movies to anybody, anytime. I, I really, his hit record, his like for making what I think are great movies is I, I don't know any other director working that has only great to me only great movies i i so i looked up because like like we do sometimes i i I looked up some uh examples of bad reviews of this movie and uh i read some articles and stuff to just sort of like you know get a vibe for what people were saying about it as as we do and uh there was a few other people who also said the same thing of like he doesn't have a miss and not all of his movies are perfect you know there's flaws and there's things you can critique about them sure but arguably Every single one of them is is a hit. And the only negative reviews I could find on like IMDb for this movie were reviews made by people who sound like they didn't really understand it. And all of their critiques were were trying to take the movie down for something that if they understood or or knew more about the context of what they were talking about maybe they wouldn't have felt the same way but be it seemed like they didn't uh they didn't quite get it enough to understand why it was actually felt like it was working which i I, as i say this out loud it sounds shitty because i'm just like oh they don't know what they're talking about but it's like that's not what i mean like everybody has their own uh interpretation of movies and things like that but it just seemed like the critiques were were there but didn't hold up if you understand them in the context of the film. Right. Um, so similarly, I also, again, looked for reviews that were negative. And um, outside of a few uh, that are, that were culturally relevant uh, criticisms that we'll get it, that we, I think we should save for when we start talking about that more. Right. Yeah. Um, I, again, I found the same, which was that, it, it seemed to be a lot of people that didn't really get, um, and we were using that pretentious, like they didn't get it, but, uh, <laughs> uh, I did feel the same as you did about that. Um, one of the things, and, uh, we're, we're getting the spoilers out early today, but one of the things is a lot of people felt, um, that the big reveal in this thing, uh, the big twists in the third act, um, was too, too coincidental and too contrived yeah it felt like there was a lot of commentary on on how the whole movie was just constructed for the twist at the end which i think this is the only movie we've done so far where i'm gonna say this at the beginning but we will spoil it and i think that it will actually ruin the movie for you if you if you know what the the twist at the end is before you watch it yeah so i'm gonna actually say that at the what end a, this what time a, what a rare break in format <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, to, to not put the spoiler warning at the yeah, end. Yeah. Oh, it'll start. be there too. Don't worry. <laughs> Perfect. No, but, uh, and I got the read that they were tr- going for in it, but then having listened to, uh, and read interviews about this and Denis Villeneuve's intention, uh, as was, um, Wajdeh Mahwad, uh, the, the playwright, um, both of them, their intention well, the playwright first, uh, his intention was to make a Greek tragedy out of this. I mean, it's literally the Oedipal tale. Yeah. In in modern times. But so, so but and that and uh, yes, and that was, but it was very much like he went that route because the whole point of like there, this is the whole point of a Greek tragedy is it has a moralistic tale involved. Yeah, and, yeah. And both of them, 
the conception of this film uh, or this this idea in in play and then film form was both for the greater idea, the greater theme of the circle of violence or the chain of violence or the, the continuation of violence and how do we stop that? And the only way to stop that is love and forgiveness and, and acceptance, I guess. And so that th- this movie and, and, its, and its convenient plot twist works in the framework of a great tra- of that great tragedy it, with, yeah uh, if, you, if this, you read it as a tragedy specifically it, with this theme involved though because in this story the way everything works out it's the worst possible situation in almost every situation in this film yeah yeah and then things just keep getting worse every step of the way yeah you know? very yeah very biblically job like like the tr- the mm-hmm. each like you think you're getting over one hurdle and the hurdles just keep getting harder and harder to jump over and um but that's the whole point with the circle of violence and the chain of violence is that that um, all that baggage, everything you're dragging along makes the future endeavors harder and it makes it potentially harder to forgive and potentially harder to accept and both your role and the other person's role and whatever con- conflict is happening. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Um, so there's a there's a lot to talk about about this film and I guess we should uh, one of the things I wanted to get out of the way t- at the start is talking a bit about the context that the film is set, um, because it it matters a lot to what to the story and Cine and everything else we're going to say. Now, the play and the film don't name the country that they're set in, and apparently that was from what I read, and we had slightly different uh, re- like when we did background stuff on this project. Both of us found slightly different information, but what I had read was that the playwright took away the name of the of the location that this was all occurring in because partly because it wasn't he felt it wasn't his, even though he he's of that descent and everything, he just didn't feel like it was his specific story to tell, um, and because he I think also partly because he wanted more freedom to tell this Greek tragedy version of the story versus sticking to actual events, physical events where you're then confined by what actually happened or, or confined by, or if you're not confined by it, open yourself up to uh, problematic interpretations where you change things and people don't like that. You've changed how it went down. Right. Um, Which can certainly be a problem. And I, I wouldn't say that we, we found, different information it just maybe you found more i didn't see much on on what the playwright did all i saw was that denise specifically when making this didn't want to get into an actual place in a specific location because he was worried about the same thing about telling a story that wasn't his uh, being a like a white french canadian telling a, a middle eastern french canadian story but i didn't see my I, I had i was under the impression the play was a little more blatant about it but I'm sure that the information you found is probably correct. So. Yeah. Um, well, it's from what I know, it is. And interestingly, though, what Denny Villeneuve did do is made it very, very specific, but without having the name involved. Yeah, like th- there's no name, but all you have to do is take five minutes of historical research and you can see very, very clearly where it's set, the time period that it's it's 
takes place within and the locations uh so um in some of some of my background uh one of the things i did do is listen to another podcast that had taught like where's a review quote unquote reviewing this right thing. right and uh and it just was at random on youtube and i'm really glad i clicked on it because they had uh one of one of the roommates of one of the pe- presenters of the pot of the podcast was is actually a uh, first generation refugee from uh, Lebanon whose family left after the 2006 conflict and came to Canada and so it, like his early teen years he came to Canada and so he was able to give some of his impressions and he was able to contextualize this story a little bit more we should say before you get into that the the that the context of the, the story which we did not specifically say we were being about as vague as the storytellers were about what the context is which is pretty clearly the lebanese civil civil war from 1975 to about uh 2000 the conflict i mean the conflict is ongoing and continues to change but but the specific time period is about 1975 to 2000 that we're looking at yeah so um so the podcast that i uh that i'm referencing is the sardana cast and it's episode 65 um where they talk about this and artemis fowl the disney production <laughs> uh and uh and it was an entertaining podcast and i recommend any people listening to this to go have a listen to that um because he's going to do this a lot better than i'm going to do this but the information he provided um I thought was interesting enough and provided a context that would be helpful with our discussion here today. Uh, his name was Gael. Um, I didn't hear a last name. Um, but anyways, so the few things that he said was that, um, so, uh, Nahual, the, the mother character in this story is based loosely around a communist uh, militant, Lebanese communist militant named uh, Suhap Sarha, uh, Sar- uh, something. Okay. Uh, sorry for the pronunciation. Um, who was uh, raised Christian in, in Lebanon and then joined the uh, communist uh, militant party, I guess. Um, and they were kind of in favor of, they were like pro-Muslim, pro-Palestine, um, and pro not peace but like trying to make peace by getting rid of the christian militants i guess the uh, israel occupational so she uh she was she was recruited because of her christian background because just like in the story she was recruited to assassinate the head of the um the general of the south lebanese army and so she did also shoot she she got in oh. there and she actually got to the point where she got she shot the person twice i believe in real life he survived um but she like her quote from it was it was one bullet for lebanon one bullet for palestine and that was oh, her, wow. like um her thing now she was sent to a prison first she was sent to israel and got tortured there for information and then she was sent to a prison which i believe is pronounced something like uh rayon 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 prison okay okay uh in southern lebanon and um it's it's uh it's the prison that is the stand-in for the prison the Fariats, i believe they pronounce it yeah Yeah. so it's the stand-in for that prison and this uh suhap was the is in real life she's the woman who sings 
So oh. she was she was in that prison and she sang to get past the torture and to get out of and in real life they asked her what she sang and she said anything that came into my mind so and and the things that he referenced was um um abba's dancing queen it was one of the songs <laughs> which i like in the movie she sings like this what feels like a traditional of the region song mm-hmm. and it has this like s- somber kind of feel to it yeah yeah the juxtaposition of like abba's dancing queen in that moment <laughs> provides me with a uh, an interesting kind of conceptual idea of what that could have been <laughs> yeah yeah um but so the the main changes from her story to the story we see in this though is she wasn't on that bus that the Christians attack and kill all the Muslims. Right. Uh, but that is a real incident that happened sometime in like 1974 or 75, and it's like one of the inciting incidents to this to this whole conflict. This chain of violence that goes back and forth reprisals they call it in the movie. Right, and the second and the, one of the secondary uh, massacres that were that they allude to in the movie that she again wasn't really involved in but in the movie she goes to the orphanage where they took her son um and then the orphanage and the town have all been kind of burnt to the ground. Well, that's apparently also was an incident that like an entire town got destroyed and burnt to the ground by the rebels or or whoever. Um, and, but again, um, uh, Suhat wasn't there. Um, but, um, so the, where, where the story for this come, came from is according to, uh, Gael at, uh, Sardonicast episode 65 again is, um, so Wajde, the writer, the, the writer of the play, um, was speaking one day when he was kind of researching about this type of thing was uh, knew a, a female war photographer who had been in South Lebanon and had taken pictures and he was talking to her and she's a, a, Fr- a French Canadian woman as well and she was describing to him um, how she would take all these pictures and stuff and how and he was he, he could see from the pictures how troubling everything was and that kind of thing and she but she was describing to him how the the most distressing photo- uh, photos were the ones she didn't take or couldn't take because she didn't want to materialize this, these disturbing images kind of right. thing. She, she didn't want the, to perpetuate the disturbing images. Um, but it was, but she noted that it was something she will never forget. And then I guess the playwright kind of came to this like idea of this invisible photo- uh, photograph that is the one you don't take, but is seared into your brain kind of thing. And we all have That's this like... a really cool like, idea. We all have this, yeah, photo album in our mind of these images that are just seared in there. And uh, but it was in it's it was her in the region taking pictures uh, that they heard a bit of a it might be a apocryphal tale, but at the time at that same prison in Rion, the uh, or the Rion prison, um, they uh, they would take old women from the region and they would torture the old women in front of their daughters and they to get information about where the sons were because the sons were like in rebel groups or whatever and they would torture the old women in front of the daughters to convince either the old women or the daughters to give them information of where their their sons and or grandsons and or nephews and or you know whoever yeah were that's brutal yeah and um but these people torturing these mature women were these young soldiers these young child soldiers in some cases right and so apparently in one of these situations um a woman kind of 
was staring at her torturer in front of her daughter and said, you could be my son age wise and and even culturally and where you were born. Like, you know, that idea that we're all family, our neighbors, our family, everything, you know, community is family. Mm -hmm. And so she makes that point, you know, you could be my son. And, but that's that apparently that hypocritical tale is what's what triggered the whole twist and everything in this. And, and it's kind of got, um, day started on this whole, um, idea to do this, to do this play and, and how this was all going to build into a circle. And, uh, so I, anyways, that was all from, uh, Gael at, uh, the Sardonicast episode 65. And I recommend he has, he says a lot more and it was very interesting. And he also talks about some, some of his personal, um, relationship to the film and to the, the cultural, um, scabs that this film picked at. And he was one of the ones I was referencing earlier that had mentioned that if like by not ref, not naming it Lebanon in the movie, uh, like he, he said, he said, from what I understood, he was saying is he was he's uh, he was unsure how to feel about that, because by removing the names and the faces of all these people that were actually hurt by these events, it's as if you're eliminating them from history in a way. And interesting. And then and so that you're. Um, it's not this term, but the, you know, the whitewashing or the yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, but so that, that was kind of his thing, but he, but then, you know, the, the, the other guys on the podcast had asked him the question of whether he thinks it's authentic. And he was like, well, the film is really, really authentic. And he actually tells the, he references the scene where all the, um, where Jean, um, the twin daughter goes to the, the, at the name of the town uh dressor dress anyway and she meets all the old women and she's saying i'm looking for my mom narwhal marwan and they and then they all don't well they one of them recognizes her and the rest and then they all say she's not welcome here and all that yeah, stuff. yeah yeah well according to gael in that scene um the final bit of beat of that scene is a local woman says something in Arabic. It's translated by a local woman in French. And then we're, we, the English viewer are giving it, given an English uh, subtext. To yeah. It. Yeah. But apparently the character, the translator in the movie doesn't translate it well. Oh, she does. She does. She gets yeah. the point across, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. you're not welcome here. So what the, what the local woman actually said is like, it's a turn of phrase on an, uh, on a, on a like Southern Lebanese, uh, like, idiom kind of thing which is something along the lines of if you're welcoming someone into your home you say something along the lines of welcome you have my land and my family kind of thing like we're at your yeah your okay, disposal yeah, yeah. so what she's saying in this moment is she's saying to she says to the daughter of uh, uh nawal marwan we would say you can't have my family or my land or something to that effect so she's like reversing the like local so it's like hi come in welcome you're not welcome here kind of thing yeah 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 so it's like a twist on that that's really interesting it's it's fascinating how different language can change like how how language can change the way people think about things and and view things like to us to use that as an example the you're not welcome here is is an accurate translation of what her point is but she wasn't specifically also saying you need to leave right now but the translation of it comes out as you need to leave right now rather than her just being like we're not here to help you 
you're you're in you're on your own in this yeah yeah and gael was making the point on that podcast that that feels very genuine and real and something that would happen and that's so so it like the film is super authentic to the region and everything but Mm -hmm. then of course there's that dichotomy about you've made a film super authentic about this but then you just didn't name the actual people and and so are we removing that that history from those people or or will (laughs) i guess the discussion and this is always the academic one is because it doesn't have the name we discuss it more and now we both you and i have like looked up information about this yeah lebanese war and conflict and stuff the the issues politically that go that are going on and have been going on in the middle east for the last 40 years are difficult sometimes to wrap one's head around if you're not inundated with it and you're not in the midst of it um and i've done my part to sort of like keep up with current offense as best as possible in in some form but there's only so much that you can get and the news is going to cover so much but there's always going to be you know spin this way or that way to an extent so i i don't really know as much about the the complicated ins and outs of of different organizations and where they're from and what they're doing and what and whatever and i certainly spent a solid couple hours after this looking through like stuff about hezbollah and stuff about like the israeli occupation and things that like and i knew like the very basics of 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 what was happening recently in that region but i know a lot more now by having you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, like, you know, we we get the cultural touchstones of like, there was Sh- Sunni Muslims and Shia Muslims. Yeah. And, and so we know those names and we know that there are two factions and we know that they fight and there's civil conflict between the, those people and stuff like that. So they're both involved. And then you've got like Christians and Jews and other like you've got a lot of mixes of cultures in this region and so you know you and i both admit we don't know a ton other than you know the odd news story like this is lebanon has been in conflict and most of the, for most of my life i mean since since the french pulled out uh which is unfortunately kind of the common story across the board in a lot of ways is that when the the power the, that clo- left, the colonial, the colonial power, power yeah, that yeah. leaves leaves the vacuum there's no and they say it really well in the movie that and another reason that I'm like this is very clearly talking about specifically about Lebanon and, and that region is that the the local notary when when Jean Nobel shows up and he, they're riding in the car and the first thing he leads with that you hear him say is like oh if only there'd been notaries in the time of Noah because all of this conflict is literally just about who owns what piece of land uh, and that like sacred important ground and they're continuing to fight over it because nobody ever laid out who owned what and then when the french left the region they didn't do anything to make the situation better or like divide things and so now everybody's just trying to trying to claim what they believe is theirs absolutely and i think it's it was very intentional to use uh, notaries on both sides of the 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 ocean to discuss yeah. this topic that that's something i think we will need to get into a little bit on like yeah and because uh, i think it is because this movie is about you know finding what's yours a little bit and and 
our history defines us to a certain extent. So most people want to go on these pilgrimages and these dis- these discoveries to find the foundations that they stand on, I guess, or to understand the foundations that they stand on and and take some sort of claim to it, which is why people get really offended and, and deny, you know, potential cultural atrocities that have happened you know, that you certainly weren't involved in, but generations past, like before you were. Um, so I, I, um, so I, but I think that ownership that, which is what we're talking about, that notary thing is that's, I think it's like, it's a clever metaphor for, for the struggle, which provides most of the conflict throughout the world, really. There was an interesting, I I saw on the topic of, of uh, the not naming thing, um, I was reading an article that was uh, talking about how Villeneuve had screened the movie in Beirut. And after it was over, there there was uh, somebody, one of the locals who'd watched it, had said that they absolutely loved it. And that it had been brought up that the movie should be shown to their kids because they teach history up to 1975. And after that, it's taboo to, to sort of like teach your kids about their own history. And that this is so the fact that it's accurate enough that they felt it was an important historical document that should be shared and that the stories should be told about what their life has been and and this part of their history that is still unfolding it 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 makes it it leans me towards the idea that maybe they should have just named it maybe they should have just made it direct but maybe that also takes away from the fact that also this isn't a completely isolated affair similar events are happening all over the the world wherever colonizing powers pulled out so well it's also just but also to the greater point of this that cycle of violence that's happening everywhere in the world not just where the colonial powers were involved but i i mean i where in the world isn't there an area I mean, there, where there, colonial violence is involved. Yeah. No, but that's oh, like well, yeah, yeah. Colonialism, Sorry. I think, touched every. That, rock that on was the one planet. of the things. Like I always kind of in my head, that was always a thing that I knew and had always been taught and was like always understood. But it, I, I, for for whatever reason, watching this movie, it really hit home how small. Not not to say that colonial the colonial thing is small, but there's like small little things happen in one place can have huge rippling effects in other places, and the fact that this has expanded into such an issue over singular sort of buckets in time if you will yeah uh, absolutely uh yeah i mean that's like the real life butterfly effect is some politician in a western european uh, cabinet meeting says something that leads to the death of generations of people in in a far-flung place around the world you know or a complete toppling of governments for other governments that's yeah absolutely so yeah it's it's that little event the butterfly flapping its wings causing (laughs) this tsunami on the other side of the world um it is that that is what colonial government was is so uh having that uh, talked about that uh kind of at length here to start (laughs) us off the with and I think it's important that we have a little bit of context for this film 100%. before yeah, we start yeah. talking about it. But we usually start by talking about kind of the more technical side of, of these films we discuss. Um, so I guess, what are your thoughts on, on the cinematography and the direction maybe and um, or whatever else? It looked super nice. <laughs> no, uh, I think that Villeneuve in his more recent movies has seemed to settle on, and I don't know... 
it seems like there's a thing about confidence with making movies where you fall into your own after you make a few and you figure out what it is you like and and what kind of filmmaking it is you do and then you you lean into it so for Villeneuve his his use of music and his use of of obscuring characters and shadows and things like that those are all things that he does really really confidently and strongly in his more recent films and you can see components of it in his older ones where he's starting to get the confidence to use those techniques a little bit more thoroughly but it's there's certainly safer as you get earlier safer choices made the earlier in most filmmakers careers you go I think but having said that you can still see components of his sort of signature style throughout that I thought were great like his use of color grading is one really good one where there's this consistent sort of sense of like heat whenever they're in in the Middle East in general uh this yellow tone to everything that feels very desert-y but equally when you come to the Quebec side of things it feels extremely gray all the time to me it felt really like misty and sort of foggy a lot and they didn't showcase the beauty in the old Quebec cities they showcased like construction zones and really sort of generic looking apartment buildings that kind of drew interesting connections between the two places that made made me kind of feel like maybe there's not a lot of difference in some aspects as the like the movie's trying to close the gap if you will yeah i found that it, the color grade on the whole thing was really interesting. Even the sunny day at the pool uh, wasn't sunny or <laughs> no, right? bright or happy or whatever. And uh, and we revisit that, obviously, a few times throughout the movie. Uh, I would like to just cut in quickly to apologize if you're hearing any insane sounds. It sounds like someone's dragging scrap metal down the alley <laughs> behind your house right now. But yeah, no, uh, I wanted to say his use of like... His control of the frame is very evident early on mm-hmm. um, because uh, like another reason both of us probably started falling for Denny was he started working later in his career with uh, well, when he started doing English English language movies. He started working with Roger Deakins. Yeah, yeah. And as you you said on the Shawshank podcast, uh, Deakins and his wife sit down went and help pick, and pick his projects, and they pick them, you know, and they use a lot of thought into uh, the director's touch. And, and this this movie, by the way, was the one that Deakins cited as being the movie that inspired him to want to work with Villeneuve. Yeah, and you can see it. And like one of the greatest lasting images of this is um, when uh, the actress. Uh, playing uh, Nawal uh, uh, Lubna Azabal, uh, she she's on her knees outside of the burning bus, and it's that frame where it's she's in the right side of the frame on her knees, just distraught, and the the bus is burning in, just behind her. And like if you showed me that frame out of context of this film and i knew that this director worked with Roger Deakins i would i would be convinced Deakins shot that shot like it's it's so a him shot i would also say that 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 was another moment that i picked up on as a really interesting use of framing in the sense that we see we cut to that shot from a shot of the guards killing the child that she's just tried to save by yeah. claiming it was her own daughter the child's running and gets shot in the back 
and falls and we cut from the motion of that child falling to the motion of noel falling in the same direction at the same part of the frame at the same speed and all like it's not quite match cut like we see the kid hit the ground before we cut away but it's so close that you almost feel like it's it's putting the two of them in like the kid going down has broken her yeah yeah it's you know because she's doing that i'm getting off the sinking ship you you aren't gonna live but your kid may so give me your kid i'll take care of the like she was in that moment made the split second decision that i will i will rear this child on your behalf just to get out of this event and then it's as if the like a piece of metal fell off the boat as it was sinking and killed the kid on the raft life yeah. raft. you know what i mean yeah, like it's yeah. i mean the kid just wa- like is watching her mother die and tries to run back to her mother like it's such an understandable thing for any child to want to do and for n- her not to understand like play along with this charade yeah. and you'll live child and how can you explain that to a child like while the people you're charading are standing five <laughs> feet yes uh, yes i went there are standing five feet away from you like you can't there's there's no way you just have to hope and and it didn't yeah and it's and like it until some events later in the film and and i would argue though still it is like it is the most crushing moment for the film for me it's also uh, as the film lays it out it's what inspires her to join the the well i mean she's kind of involved in the resistance back in her hometown but it's it's what like convinces but it, it, her it's, it's to more truly... like political activism in the sense of like telling her story and being involved in the journaling of it and yeah, trying to like yeah change the hearts and minds she, she's she's making posters to stick up over yeah. town not trying to shoot people yeah is what i, I kind of understood at the start of it more non-violent activism is yeah how it seems to be um yeah and then she's eventually broken down by the cruelty that, of the world around her and wants revenge yeah absolutely but go, going back to uh uh villeneuve's uh, use of his frames i he uses a lot of tableau he uses a lot of like still camera at a distance voyeur- holding on wide shots for a really long time in conversation which and is unusual. and also slightly voyeuristic like mm. he, he'll like sometimes it, they're nice clean tableaus with no foreground anything but other times he ha he generally when tensions as the tension starts to build more and more in his films it seems like we start he starts putting the camera and using more foreground so it's as if we're a fly on the wall or a third character in the room with them watching and it gives us kind of an entry to these people because that's how we observe the world even though you would think shooting a pov of from a character's uh, point of view would help us the viewer get into the head of a character but it i don't find those are as effective as that these take me out of it more yeah often because than not. because we're used to seeing other humans in the world and identifying with them a that they're human and all that but also without whatever struggle we're observing or with whatever with those moments of happiness we're observing or whatever we we are able to see the human the full body of the human and see their characteristics and therefore identify with them so when as opposed to doing getting in super close to try to go look identify with this character at the start of this movie there were, we spent a lot of time at a distance and like wide well and- even just that first shot where we're it's looking 
I mean, eventually you realize it's looking out a window, but you're just seeing nature and then it comes back and then you see the window frame and then it comes back and then we're in that room with those kids and you're like, oh, this is all so, one big setup. So when he does, when he moves his camera, it's very intentional is, was the next thing I was yeah, going to say. Yeah. So things like that. And in all his movies, um, another YouTube video I watched uh, made this point and I had, I had kind of thought about it when I was watching his stuff, but never had put it to this idea, but it's... It's as if that the camera is showing you it's in control, not you, the viewer kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, and which is part of like a, th a theme of his movies that you aren't in control of the world, that you have to accept the world around you a bit. And that, that will help you find happiness and such. <laughs> and, and I think he's doing that a bit with his, like you, the, he doesn't show you necessarily what you want to see as the viewer. He shows it to you when you need to see it as a viewer. Yeah. And... And those slow pans and stuff that he does uh, or pull back and it's like eventually what it starts revealing uh, this YouTube video made the point. But again, is something that I was I had picked up on, but it's usually hiding some violent act or something, some like, you know, some gross underbelly of what you previously thought you were seeing. So beautiful mm -hmm. moment in nature, slowly reveal the hunter, uh, you know, you're seeing or whatever, or, or in this case, slowly like seeing the beautiful Lebanese countryside, slowly pulling back to seeing that we're in a room with child soldiers and they're getting their who heads. have just been acquired from an orphanage yes. and are being marked essentially. Yeah. And, um, you know, and the, and the horror that that in Place. which even that that scene even the first time i watched the movie when i didn't know what was going on there it's still with that song over top of it that radiohead song that's playing it you, you get you get a pretty solid sense of what you're looking at even if you don't know it yet you know what you're looking well, at and it's a really powerful start to the movie i think if you showed this movie to somebody in 1980 for instance uh so five years into this conflict or whatever i don't think people would uh, certainly western white people wouldn't initially know what they're seeing there i think we now have been exposed to videos of child child soldiers all over the world yeah to the point we now can recognize some of the tropes of what a child soldier environment looks like i guess yeah so i i do think like you're right i think not knowing any context you show someone that that first three minutes of this movie they know exactly what's happening i, I guess I, I i should say too though i don't mean necessarily that you you know you're looking at kids being taken into the ranks of this militia so much as there's enough emotion in that scene that even though you don't know exactly what's going on you know how you're supposed to be feeling and you know that whatever you're looking at is it it, it gave me a, a very powerful response even not knowing entirely what was happening. And then when you come back to it later and understand what's happening, it had the same response, but yeah. In film language, there are certain taboos, one of which is staring down the lens, right? Uh, yep. But in, in, in film language, um, the convention is necessary so that when we break convention, it can be, uh, if you understand why you're doing it, it can be very effective. And this, the, when we, the, when the final push in on the child and he spikes the lens as he's getting his head shaved is the other, uh, image that from this film that is indelible and will like never leave my brain. No. Yeah. It's burned um, in my, in my mind's eye at this point. And it's so, so like I, 
I, if I ever meet Denny Villeneuve and we have a chance to like, and I have a chance to fanboy over him a bit and <laughs> ask him some questions, one of the things I'll ask him is what he what he spoke to that child about prior to filming that scene, because that's sometimes the magic, right? Sometimes the magic isn't him giving the child the context of what he needs, what we need story wise. Maybe he told him like, ah, oh, you're. Maybe he just told him you're a- angry or try to give him an emotion to tap into. You, you don't have to necessarily give the child a traumatic story about what his life has been or what this character's life is going right. to be. You can just give him something that that kid might connect with. But what I'm saying is the music, the camera movement, the just the complete mise-en-scene of that moment, I knew what Danny wanted to say. Yes. yeah, And yeah. that... I find that like that's so powerful as a director and it's something that I like it's it's the that it sounds corny but that's one of the reasons I love this medium as a as a storytelling device that you can through use of sound and music and images and stuff like that you uh, but without words you can tell a story you can you can show someone an image and just like like subtext um subtext context clues kind of things i mean the and only words in that build in that shot whole... are the song lyrics to the song yeah and and you know and tom york has a famously haunting voice and it's uh, it's become slightly cliche to use radiohead in big productions for like a haunting rock song or a a cinematic kind of feeling song um but man is it effective in this uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't want to say it's my favorite scene in in the movie because there's just so many powerful, powerful moments throughout. But that that even even still, having now watched it three times in the last week, um, it that that particular scene and that particular shot still sticks. So, and from what I read of the lyrics of that song, it seems like it it one of the reads of that song is that it's an it's a revolutionary song it's an anti it's a rage against the machine type of song it's an anti-establishment song uh it's talking about like you know uh it's talking to it kind of names some hierarchical systems and governments and such and then says like you and your cronies bring it on yeah yeah you and what army are going to take away my freedom my life my whatever um i mean and (laughs) throughout history that's been proven (laughs) incorrect and the little guy loses most of those fights but i think the whole idea with revolutionaries and revolution is that it's it's the revolution um you're winning if you're succeeding in in the mind you're winning the you're winning the war of ideas uh, is is a is a is how the little guy succeeds in these in well, these ideas historical... are the most powerful yeah transmission. so so it's that whole thing it's like and and the song is used at that moment to kind of get us the mood and the vibe of this uh, whole thing and then it's ironically the two things we both said are indelible images from this movie after the second one which is uh, Nawal in front of the burning bus the next moment we join her daughter in the modern day in the present day travel or i guess yeah present day traveling in southern lebanon and she's sleeping on a bus or passed out with earphones on a bus and the song comes in again and we spend a moment listening to it again but now in the context of 
her this daughter starting to learn all of these major clues about her mom and who she is and the freedom fighter she was and that kind of thing well that that's something that i found really interesting about the structure of the movie in general too is that um it's and and some of the critiques i was seeing you know about it like the whole thing just being like a series of a series of revelations all throughout the movie and i mean that that i think becomes the movie's strength in a way it's it's taking this sort of picaresque style journey that has existed in our storytelling since storytelling existed pretty much i mean don quixote being kind of the classic example of that sort of thing but um but that physical journey from point a to point b trying to get somewhere trying to find something do something but at the same time it's also um that that journey taking place in her own mind of like coming to terms with everything that her life is and all of that is paralleled with Noel's story where they're in the same places at the same time as she's following in the future or in the present right following the story we are seeing it unfold at the same pace in the same places which I thought was a really smart way to break that down and I must say it 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 will probably take me and I watched it three times probably like I watched it once last week and then twice more this week leading up to this podcast and it'll take me maybe and you know maybe I'm just slow on the uptake but uh, it'll take me maybe another view or two to truly understand uh, where the dramatic irony is like um, what does what what like for the most part uh, Jean Simon uh, tell us when they learn what information they know because they they get to use the device of talking to each other about the case or about the the or at least she leaves him endless voicemails well not endless <laughs> but she leaves him a few and then eventually he comes in like and when we find out the major revelation in the third act it comes from Simon and he is telling her you know he does that math question and then for some reason I I love I love it I love it in this because uh, it worked really well but like why would you make your sister play like a sphinx riddle game to find out the most important information of her life i mean i mean i i love it because it was set up and and i that was a question i wanted to ask you about actually if we're if we're going to get into that the math thing of like what what you thought because i was trying really hard to decipher other than it just being this sort of analogical metaphor uh, those words don't go together but anyways uh uh for their her being the math genius who's you solving this math puzzle essentially yeah but other than other than that like the the scene where she's talking to uh the professor the first professor she meets in in undisclosed middle eastern country um and he's like, oh, at the time I was teaching about the seven bridges of Konigsberg problem, and in blah, and like then he just starts talking about the problem. It's like, why are we, why are we being given this information? I thought that was the, uh, I thought that was the te- the one she works for. You're talking no, about? no, no, the the one that the the one that Niv Cohen, who's the one she works for, he sends her to this professor oh, Said. Right. Uh, I can't remember his last name. Said right. something. The uh, I do know that the problem they talk about in her classroom um when that, he's talking that one's about the, more appropriate so when he's talking about yeah the 
like the co- collabs. Yeah. So yeah, and in the IMDb trivia, it gives a big thing away. But if you're if if a mathematician watched this movie, they would have a big clue to what the the big reveal because the the problem they talk about is based like if uh, it's a problem that if you use odd numbers, you do one thing. If you do even numbers, you do one thing. But essentially, the formula, the whole point of the formula is reduced is if you keep following the formula, it reduces this whatever sum you put in to one. Yeah. So if we so, want to get if we want to get super specific, it's an algorithm that produces the number one out of any positive integer by dividing even numbers by two and multiplying odd numbers by three and uh, adding one to that. That's what I said, essentially. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would just, uh, for mathematicians, out there, yeah, perhaps, I, I'm I, just I not, felt like we uh, needed no, to. No, 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 for sure. I, which I am not, so I had to. I, but, I um, was also going to read that out, but I didn't really understand everything. I so. still don't really understand entirely so what uh, I just said or how it makes sense. So, All yeah. I know is that it loops around to the end where she then, he, uh, Simone then says, one plus one, can it equal one? Yeah. And well, and I didn't get it the first time even after it got to that point until they spelled it out for me and then I felt dumb. And part of that was because the movie is so good about making you feel at least it felt to me like it makes you feel like you know what's going on the whole time. Like you but you're you don't because you're inside their head. So for me as I went along it I was like, I was on top. I felt like I was on top of things. Like every time something new happened, I was like, oh, I get it. It's this or, oh, I get it. It's that. But it was always from the perspective of Jean, who is, doesn't have all the information, but the movie was able to place me in a situation where I was making the same conjecture she was. And it wasn't until the end when I realized that we were both wrong, that I, I get the same reaction that she gets when she realizes it because i have been in her shoes this whole time so quickly i just i, I want to go through so there's three storylines we follow we follow yes. the twins after their mom passes and we follow them until the end of the movie and then the second storyline we follow is the birth of their what they think is younger brother but or other brother but is a much older brother and we follow his storyline from his birth, which splinters off early from the mum the mum storyline. But we follow his storyline in chunks throughout, and they're more disassociated with each other than the other two storylines. Um, and then the third storyline, of course, is the mom story from uh, like a uh, young girl in the villages who I believe it's it, it looks like it implies that she's a girl from Christian upbringing has fallen in love with a muslim man yeah i was now having that, a little bit of like back and forth thing where i was trying to keep track of, of like which... well because her great offense and the fact that she disgraced her whole family is obviously that she's pregnant and pregnant it appears to be pregnant out of wedlock and in the in from what i read she's supposed to be younger than she appears when that happens like i think i yeah, think I, she's I was, meant to be 14 i was i was get, but that's i was getting at that like I didn't think that when I saw the first images of that moment, no. but later when I was putting her story into context, I was like, oh, she's, that's probably her as like a 16 year old. Yeah. And then she escapes her house at like 18 and goes south and does everything. That, she does. that was clearly the, the big disgrace that everybody talks about. But I also feel like she switches sides 
and I couldn't keep I wasn't very good at keeping track of which side she was I fighting didn't think for. She, I think the whole time she's fighting against the Christians. But she's, she's a Christian. Yes, she was which raised means a Christian. Her family is Christian. Yes. Yes. So she's also potentially betrayed them in the sense that they supported the other side of the civil war. Sure. Uh, but her her family, yeah, her family may and that region that the whole that whole they may all be Christians in that area or whatever or we're all Christians in that area. So yes, her being on the other side and she would be very famous in the country for the act she performed killing the because in this story she she kills the general of the army of the yeah. southern army. Well, we don't know. It, she, oh, that's he, true. He, he, she shoots him, but we never actually see whether that's he's true. dead that's, or not. It's I, my left brain ambiguous. Put, that, my, my brain put that together. I was like, yeah, he's dead. Of course he's dead. She Obviously. Did, she, she don't miss. She don't miss, no. <laughs> but you can you can be dead on and still survive. Yeah, I don't know, for sure. Um, and in, in real life, it was two shots and the guy survived. So maybe he, he does survive in this story. And I just... but They just never say. And yeah. they leave it up to us to decide. And I interpret it as dead as well, but... S- so we're following those three storylines, and so when the children are given, I guess we haven't, I, we don't usually talk plot in like step by step form, but uh, so the movie opens uh, with the reading of a uh, will, and the reading of the will is a very odd reading compared to most, which is, I don't want anything from you guys. I don't want a tombstone. I don't want any marker. I want to be buried upside down. So I, I'm like, I'm not part of the world. And there's this seemingly self-loathing kind of, and it, and it's, and it's clearly sense of regret juxtaposed of what we understand by watching the children's reaction to this being read that it's, it's different to what they know of the woman who raised them as their mom. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I, yes. And so, so they're given two letters: one to find their brother, one to give to their brother, one to give to their father. They never knew they had a brother, and they've been told all their life their father is dead. So this is th- that is the inciting incident that sets off the entire production of this film, and then it turns out that the of course the letters are going to the same person. the The brother is the father. So, what was clever about that though? And the way it was presented like that is that as you are, because we're, we are the protagonist we follow is Jean, uh, Marwin, the, the daughter, the, the female twin. Um, um, so when the things like they assumed that the brother born of the rape, like she finds out the mother was raped and it, well, one, she finds out her mother went to prison. Then she finds out her mother was raped and said prison and became pregnant with, what they are both left thinking is their brother. And then the big reveal, of course, or one of the, the first big reveal is that it's not they, it's the twins that were born of a rape and an, a, a sexual assault and not their brother. So the father, they, they've been told that was their father all their life was, not their, was not their father. And then, of course, then the big reveal comes that the older, the brother was the brother of was born of love was the was that first relationship that caused the disgrace that caused her whole life that's how the brother is born but of course because he's torn from her the mother's love and mother's arms and he's raised in hatred and and fear uh he becomes a child soldier and then ultimately tortures a woman and like and how to 
shitty men exert their power over women and is generally sexual assault. And so in a, in a moment to try to break her, he sexually assaults her. Of course, we don't, he doesn't know. And we don't know when we first see that, that he is her son doing that to his own mother. Um, it's, and thus the chain comes around. Yeah. And then that makes the, the violent chain full circle. Yeah. It's just, I, I just, um, I just wanted to lay everything out because as we talk about the story and stuff and, and everything, it, um, I find I, I it, this one more than any of the other films we've done requires a bit of understanding of the plot. It, it does. And I, I think even like having watched it a few times now, I don't know. Like, I still don't think I have a full grasp of, of all of it and, and what everything is meant, how it all like I understand enough of it that I'm like, I know the story. I know the characters. I know what happens. But like there, there's something there's a lot more to it than that that I still don't think I have a full grasp of. No, yeah. And I'm, I'm right there with you. That's what I was saying is like it's going to take me a few more watches of this over the years to fully understand like who knows what, when and that kind of thing. But it, but I think you you grasp enough even in a first time viewing to, to get the effect that they're going. For. Yeah. Like you get to the end of the film and get that gut punch of like, oh, this is what happened. Um, something that I'm still sort of working around that I'm curious what you thought about uh, is, so they reveal at a certain point that uh, it was not, in fact, the mother that wrote the letters, but it was the notary, Jean Nobel. Neb- Neb- and I'm curious if you think, so does he know everything? Because he wrote the letters, but the letters weren't like clear. So there's two readings of this. One reading is that he's sitting there in this chair, reading them this will, knowing full well what they're going to find. And that quote of like, um, I'm going to butcher this because I don't have it exactly, but the idea of like, there are some truths that can only be revealed on the condition of being discovered. So he's sitting there knowing that the whole family situation and knowing that it is sacred for uh to observe the act of what the last words the will and he sent them on this journey that he knows is going to be traumatic for them and this is why he's pushing simone all the time uh and why he's he's going because he promises he says a promise is sacred which is a theme of this movie the idea that you have that promises are sacred and you need to keep them and so he makes a promise that they're going there to get the sister when simone finally goes after her and then promptly breaks that promise immediately which tells me that he knows the truth i think he knows and i think it's they tell us a few different ways Uh, um but one is that most times when we find him when we don't find him in the middle of a scene with the kids when we do find him in other scenes he's taking a moment of reflection generally i mean the first time we see him he's standing in a file room yeah with his eyes closed hands against the shelf yeah looking at and the he's, ground. he's in almost like a to be searched by the cops position type yeah, of thing. yeah and he but he's hanging his head and he's taking a moment and later he describes that his this is his family's history is all these other families histories like this is my grandfather and the things he notarized and this like, is my it dad was it was me. weird that he showed some other dude's will to to Simone right when he's like this is totally 
like probably not related, but I just like talking about this is my history. He's in that room. He's like, oh, look at this file. Like, why is he showing? Anyways, it is a little strange, but I think that's supposed to go to his motivations and his motivations is he's incredibly proud of his family being notaries and everything that entails. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like him, I think him and his, his, um, his Lebanese counterpart both have a reverence for that type of work um uh, another cool thing that's both story and cine th- thing that i found really interesting is when it's revealed that they are the product of of rape um the the twins and that's and that's the first big reveal they find out together yeah the next scene is there's that cut to the plunge into the pool yes uh so they it cuts to the two kids jump in the pool and and i got a really interesting metaphorical read on that because they both jump in in like kind of a cannonball form, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. a cannonball form is very close to like the fetal position. Yeah. And then the two twins, the first time they find out this shocking news, they like dive back into a greater womb type of thing, and are there, uh, and are there in kind of a like in the fetal position in a shared body of liquid yeah i was that's interesting i was trying to figure out what to do with that scene because the the way i had read it it was sort of like they and it didn't make any sense at all in that form but it was sort of like oh they found out and then they go to like the hotel swimming pool and go for a a swim to do lanes because they're uh trying to like work out whatever but like i couldn't figure out what the intention was other than just them sharing this like Re- uh, realization together so that read of it i mean i i have no idea what the intention is but it feels very but like in a moment they both sought solace in comfort in in this, each other and in, in, in water shared environment yeah yeah i don't know uh that was like a we- read i got and then of course because you know the, the whole christian upbringing got, is jammed into my brain as well uh, and therefore any dunking of in water is a cleansing oh. of sins. Uh, that kind of a rebaptism to wash away that original, like baptism is washing away the original sin from a baby. So it's a bit of a baptismal moment because they found out that the, they were born of this sinful act and that they've now found they're, tr- they're, they're taking that first step in the, rebirth of their new life yeah their new understanding yeah Yeah. i i don't know that was like another kind of read i got off of it uh pools their pools are featured three times in this movie one the mom is at the pool when we see kind of her well her finding her son in the future uh who's now living in canada the the son who tortured and raped her but also the one that was torn from her as a young mother and and when we're first shown that scene we're only shown the end of the scene and we don't understand why she's catatonic and sitting. although in that scene we see um we see nihad in the background of the shot most of the time we just don't know it yet yeah, which i thought was a nice little touch it is a nice touch and they didn't do anything obvious like show us his heel till no they, you don't till see his need... tattoo you don't even see his face it's yeah. just his body in the back so that when you get to the reveal down the road you're like oh 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 i figured it i'm a wizard yeah so there's that pool which is like it's supposed to be this nice day out between mother and daughter and you already though by the way there's like when they show evidence of the mom and the kids together 
there does seem to be a bit of a cold relationship there. So that that was what I meant when I was saying way back in the beginning of this about the Simone character and bumping with his character a bit because it made me wonder what sort of relationship the three of them had because first of all, we don't really see it. The only time that they interact with each other is that pool scene. Other than that, we don't see them together. So we don't know what their relationship was like. So I do think we do know based on the context of the final letter they get. They get Once they, at the end of the film, when they've delivered the two le- letters to their brother father, they go back to the, to the notary and he gives them a final letter that their mother wrote. And the, it's, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but it says something like, now that it's all out there, I can finally hold you and I can finally coddle you and I can finally wrap you in a blanket and keep you safe. And, and I mean, I guess if you she, think about it, she like... wasn't able to do that prior to then. And like during their childhood, there was it seems by that by what she says in that letter, it seems therefore there was a, a, distance. a, a distance between her and her kids for her whole life because to her they're the representation yeah. of the one of the worst moments of her life yeah although equally they then are also um because they're the in a roundabout way the subject of her, the love of her life's kid uh yeah and i i think that I, I think that the relationship played out exactly as well as as it could have been done in this film in the sense that how do you, as a person, reconcile that scenario? And how do you, how are you, how do you wake up every morning looking at a visual representation of, of, as you said, the worst moment of her life and having to, but also at the same time, they talk about it like, oh, well, you know, when she's sent away by Chamsuddin, he says, oh, your kids will help you. I know that I know that you know that they're alive and, and they'll help you. And, and so, like, she was sent with them with good intentions as, as, like, a support network. But that support network is also, like, a poison needle in the bed kind of thing at the same time. Um, and, and so, in, in that vein, the, the behavior of Simone throughout the movie and his, like, constant anger is... It, it, it totally makes sense to me but i i remember bumping on it in the beginning with the first time i watched it i was like why are you being so obtuse about this well yeah and i do but i do think part of that i i didn't bump on it as much but part of that was because it because of how weird the the scenario they were presented was and so he's like and for me that my reaction to something like that would be a similar reaction would be like I, I don't give a shit. We're going to plant them in the ground and move on with our lives. Yeah, like, yeah. let's like, I mean, you know, like uh, that's not how I agree. I don't agree. I'm not going to grieve. Like it, like this is just the formalities who cares. We're just going to do it right and do it the normal way. Yeah. And yeah. I will grieve in my own time, in my own space, in my own way. Yeah. And that's kind of how I read it. Like that's how and, I read his actions, and that's how I read most of it. And for I don't know what it was, but there was just there was moments throughout where like part of my brain was just like, uh, oh, no, never mind. That's not. Uh, it's it's bothering me for some reason. I couldn't place it, and then and then I would come right back around again. But but yeah, when when I got to the end and and you hit that part and and you're like, oh well, that's that makes way more sense, and it elucidates their their relationship, and then it makes a lot more sense as to why you know why they behave the way they do yeah and uh, you touched on it there and we've touched on it a couple times but um 
there's a major theme in in De- uh, Denny Villeneuve's work, though, and I haven't have I seen everything? I guess I have seen literally all his stuff, but it's been a while since I've seen some of it, so it's not super fresh in my mind. But for the most part, one of the big most of his protagonists are seeking a truth, um, mm. a greater understanding. And then, but the conflict, uh, one of the major conflicts is an interior conflict. And it's, it's that dichotomy that comes along with truth, which is expressed by the one time prison guard, now janitor of a, of a school. Yeah, yeah. And he says that sometimes it's better not to know everything, right? She, you're on this, quest to learn but sometimes it's better just to leave what you don't know is what that character says to her yeah, and yeah. she persists because i think denny villeneuve i mean i would have to ask him but i think he believes that no matter how horrible the truth is the first step is to learn that truth then where you go from there is how how your life is going to be built but your your life is is a um you know it's it's built on a house of cards as long as you don't learn that truth and it it'll it can fall apart at any moment whereas if you uh if you yeah if you keep hiding from that truth you'll never you'll never have you'll never have true happiness or true whatever there there there's a certain peace that comes with ignorance perhaps but well but, but it's not true yeah and it's you know and for the most part like because like in blade runner right um the ryan gosling character is searching for an answer that he kind of knows in the back of his head the whole (laughs) time nice dance around i like it but it's 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 uh and and so that truth is going to fundamentally change him when he finds it but he he knows he has to find it yeah and in arrival it's there it's not quite like the truth i mean it gets there, to the there, point there, that there's the, a seeking the truth in the sense of seeking the reason for or the cause right. of the current situation and, she's, and you know and it gets the stakes get raised in that movie to the point that we're on the like potential nu- nuclear armageddon if she can't yeah. get answers out of this uh much more intelligent species than us uh to to why they've come and what they're there to do and it turns out they're there to help us all yeah. But they're, they're they're they did it in a way that we all have to work together, and that's yeah. Uh, um, but also prisoners. There's a major seeking of truth. Uh, um, and like yeah. Uh, so and it's and it's uh, so I think, but I think that like that dichotomy of truth that is the like, uh, you think you want to know the truth, but you don't like, but knowing the truth may may uh may and in and his movies will change who you are yeah and i mean there's that moment right at the beginning too to go back to the the peace and ignorance thing where where simone is there and uh, jean are out by the the truck getting ready to leave and he's like angrily kicking things and saying i'm at peace now everything's good now but like he's yelling it and kicking things like he's clearly not but he's saying he is and that to me, that's that same sort of like there is a peace in ignorance, but there isn't because you know that that there's more out yeah, there. Yeah, your subconscious is aware you're lying to yourself, right? Yeah, and you're yeah. hiding something from yourself, and so there's going to be that unease, and you're not going to be settled in your soul, for lack of a better term, for the rest of your life. Um, and yeah, also I wanted to mention that 
that shot i don't know what it is about that shot they're in shade standing beside their truck talking and you can read all the information you need to read i mean it's a daytime thing um but there's that like brighter white building in the background it's the only shot in montreal or not montreal in quebec where it's bright and sunny yeah and but it just and maybe that's what it was was the first time i saw sun in the whole movie um other than kind of when the two thugs come to get Simone in the hotel at the end, when they walk down the hallway, the window is very bright and so Yeah. And I mean, like all the exterior stuff in Lebanon is, is quite bright. Sunny. But like in <laughs> yeah. Montreal, yeah, or, yeah. Well, I don't know why I keep saying Montreal. In Quebec, the a lot of it is clouded and, and overcast and yeah, gray, yeah. except for that shot. Yeah. And it, I don't know. Yeah. Anyways, that shot, when it came up on screen, I went, oh, wow. And I like in my head, obviously, I'm not a crazy person saying that. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Uh, but I don't know why, because there's nothing really special about it. They're on like a 50 mil back about 40 feet from the subject or, or maybe further, maybe 60 feet from the subject. It's also one single take wide shot of them in the distance doing things and then walking away. Like, I don't think we cut in that no, scene. No, you don't get in close to see. No. You don't like end. We just we were in playing in weird over close-ups in the notary's office just before that, so it's the first time we see them as siblings together dealing with the situation, and we don't cut in for a close-up. Yeah. Like the what you were talking about earlier, directors being brave and getting braver as they like this is his third feature, but that's a ballsy move to like. I mean, it's different with independent films and cinema films meant for cinema, cinematic films. Uh, you and I work on television movies a lot. Yeah, yeah. And you got they like. I mean, they. It's a stupid network stuff, but you have you have to shoot coverage. Mm-hmm. You can't let a scene breathe in a wide like that. And for the most part, I think if you ever ask a studio exec, they always want coverage because they always think that the audience is. Uh, not intelligent enough to understand the emotion if you don't give them, you know, a extreme close up on yeah. someone's eyes or whatever. Yeah, yeah, you, they, you get you, this idea that you have to sell it up or people aren't going to feel it. But and like you can sit through that scene and you can you can derive a lot from those performances without getting in close. And I think Denis Villeneuve a- asks a lot of his audience uh, like he mm-hmm. he provides you with the information you need, but he gives you he gives you it and he doesn't ram it over your over your head because he understands that you uh you know people are are fairly intelligent and if and you give us the work to do we we're able to do that work when we're watching it and part of that that too that thing i said before about the, it being like this sort of picaresque style sort of journey you know that like a big component of the movie i feel is built around this idea that you are in their shoes and you are experiencing as they are experiencing and if if they don't if they spoon feed everything to you it takes away that sense of you are there with them trying to figure this out because they've they've given everything to you right off the top so you you don't have to think about it but by letting it breathe and letting you interpret you are in a sense performing the role of these characters yourself which brings you much more into the middle of it than it would otherwise yeah yeah for sure and also the same with the like i i think uh i can't remember oh i guess with maybe when we talked about snatch i talked about um how you know um 
after Tarantino in the nineties, everyone started kind of doing fractured narrative stories. Right. And yeah. How it, um, how, if it's not done well, it really bugs me. Mm-hmm. Um, and Denny Villeneuve does do it in a lot of his films. Uh, Arrival is a fractured narrative. This is a fractured narrative. And this one is actually one of the more obvious, like he does chat, they do chapter headings and things like that. And they do a little bit more, but even still, but the first time I'm watching it. And again, this is like, uh, you know, it's the, well, yeah, yeah. This is a full on racisty thing to say, but it, I had a little trouble at first uh, um, associating the mom and the daughter from each other without getting other clues around it. Like when we sometimes when we cut to the mom or cut to the daughter and they're standing on uh, by a road, I didn't know if we we're in present day or we we're in the. Oh, I didn't I know see. which actress we were with at first. It took me a second, and then I figured out. You know, I could tell them apart ultimately, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. like. They do. A, they are both women who have similar features, brunette hair, blah blah blah. Like they were well cast in that way. Yeah, they look similar, and so it did take me a second with my stupid eyes to figure out who was who. So that that was the only cause for confusion with timelines at the start for myself. The the intertitle thing too was or not inter, a heading title thing was kind of interesting too. Now that you bring that up, because like it's very clear in the beginning what it's defining. It's like okay, this is we've been given a character name and now we see it written and now we see this storyline. Are we, but. And then when you come through and you get the the, the title that is the twins' uh, birth names, I guess. So, so Juan and Janelle. Oh no, they've I, they say them like once, and I can't I can't think. Yeah, of and there. there's a title card for yeah. them, and I yeah, um, but I, I do remember what you mean. It's yeah, an S and, and a J name. And yeah, a, yeah, and I remember looking at it and thinking, okay, so every other one has been a name of a single person. So is this then the name of the kid? And and it was like it 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 was a really good clue that I didn't pick up on at all, but it was like well built into that. If I was a smarter person, I maybe would have at that point in time realized what was going on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it, it's either a region name or a person's name generally that it. Yeah, that it yeah, the, yeah. The Duressa uh, and yeah, and, and other ones are also. Um, and yeah, and and then I guess for their mom, they give the descript that the thing she gets known by in the town or whatever is the woman who sings. Yeah um but other than that yeah it's all that it and the woman who sings is a really good one too because you're like what the f does that mean it's well timed where you don't understand what it is and then you do and you instantly do and you're like oh man okay and then also the fact that uh simone dances around using that name at first too when he's talking to the locals and then Mm -hmm, he goes mm -hmm. my mom's the woman who sings and then they all like there's that knowing glance as they sip a tea or whatever. And, and then like, they just sit there. That's one of the things that I love about Villeneuve's movies as well is that he he's not afraid to sit in an awkward moment or to sit on a small detail that doesn't seem like it's particularly important. Like he'll show these like long little shots of like a uh, little like coffee table here or like filing cabinet there or like a little sideways glance and a tea sip here. And you just like awkwardly are in the middle of this scene for longer than need be. But in doing so in the same way that he is like a master at building tension with how he paces his shots and his cuts, it works the same way for awkwardness in that too. I I, like, there's a certain part of me that has a pang of jealousy for uh, young students of film now who have his, have, you know, eight movies or whatever by him now that they can look at because when I went to film school 
we had Maelstrom and we just got Polytechnique, mm-hmm. like came out the year I went or maybe just after I graduated, actually. So I was aware that it was coming and, and I saw film schools where I saw Maelstrom, someone owned it and we watched it as like a group together. But like he is so, so intelligent in his um, in his like as we've been t- gushing about this entire podcast. <laughs> but I, I'm yeah, I, ha- I like I legit have some jealousy for kids who need, are learning how to s- study film and learning film nowadays and they have him as an aide to go look at because he is he in the same way that if you want to learn film language you you can watch a martin scorsese movie mm-hmm. and you learn film language very well you learn what a dolly move is supposed to indicate and what uh i mean he still uses wipes uh martin scorsese to like as scene transitions from time to time yeah fair uh, enough in the departed he uses screen wipes which i think is insane but it's it's also kind of interesting yeah yeah and when in pl- like and you have to be a true master to use some of those outdated film language stuff you have to be a real master to use it nowadays and uh and but villeneuve is like i think he's a master of the craft already uh and the really exciting thing is he's just starting to do some of his big like I like he's entering his prime now kind of thing. Yeah. In my opinion. So I, I'm so excited to see what he does. Um, but one of the things I really notice is how efficient he is in his storytelling. Yeah. Um, and there's a bunch of examples in this movie, but one of the really cool ones is when those two bad guys come or, well, I say bad guys, but work for a, uh, warlord right so and so they come to his apartment and so we already understand that they're menacing just by the way they're presented we're behind them we follow them down a hallway they look like they look like bodyguards they have a stance a they way ha- of moving and then and then we're further given information that they're bad people uh or potentially scary people by simon saying okay can i tell my sister and they're like no and he's like okay well i gotta change my shirt and then they but then they have that like moment of levity where they go he's just gonna call his sister and they're like yeah but it's fine <laughs> yeah yeah And yeah. they have that little moment of levity so you're like oh okay and then they do that really cool shot um which as a gaffer i have another thing to point out about it Ooh. but it's the shot where the they're going through the metal detectors on the way out of the yep, building yep and he walks through and then they both walk through and set it off so then you know they're carrying a gun. We've they're, never they're, seen a gun. We've never you know seen a weapon. It. But now we know we know that the character is scared of them. The 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 co-protagonist we're following is a little bit scared of them. And then we find out that he has potentially reason to be scared of them. And that's all done without, you know, showing us an insert of a gun on a hip or anything like or that. Or a single like sentence necessarily. Like you could do yeah. that whole scene without dialogue. And get the same impression. Stakes were raised, were yeah. Stakes were raised without it, without them indi- like being o- hit over the head with the indication. I, I guess stakes. what I mean without dialogue is that you could have the sound off. There was yeah, a thing yeah. my old film instructor used to say, which was that you should, if a, if a, if a scene is well shot, you should be able to turn the sound off and understand through the visuals what's going on. And that yeah, is a great example I, of that. Yeah, in our film school, they always said the same thing, and they said eight, you will you'll understand eighty percent of the movie if you yeah. shut off the sound and you just watch the visuals. Yeah. And in fact, it's actually it is to this day. If I want to study the 
Cinny of a scene. And by the way, Cinny work, this all works in conjunction. So to shut one thing out is only to focus on another thing, but the, the two enhance each other. Oh, of course. So that, but yeah, to nowadays to stu- if I want to study what the camera and what the dire- director and the director of photography or cinematographer are doing together, I, I, yeah, I mute it and you watch a scene and you watch where the cuts are and you watch the tension, but when, why they're making those cuts and if they speed up and things like that. Um, I, I, I think also, I think I under, I'm going to take a stab at what I think you meant when you said I have something to say about that scene as a gaffer. Um, because the first two times I watched it, I didn't catch Simone's reaction because he's outside in really bright light that kind of blows him out a little bit. And the focus clearly is on the inside, but like he's half covered by set and reacting to the, to the, the alarm detector going off, but you don't see it. You don't know it because at the end of the day, that's not the important part of the scene the important part is that we know that they have guns yeah but he does know it and he does react to it but you can just barely tell it's there so that's not what i was gonna say but i do like i did i also picked up on that and i did like that idea that it's a bit of a throwaway but it's because it's important that we know and we already kind of have the information that he's nervous of them of them without that look back yeah yeah but it's there and the actor plays it and it is captured so what were you thinking then? So <laughs> the metal detectors are in the middle of a marble floor, in the middle of a glass and marble front entrance to a building. And there is a uh, meandering power cable <laughs> that goes to the metal detector. And the reason I, wa- I wanted to bring it up and the fact that you didn't notice it is why I wanted to bring it up because I, I've had this, I've ha- long had a conversation with the various uh, DPs I work with that that things plug in in real life and it's sometimes okay to see said thing being plugged in like, like you can see power cables coming off of I don't know a Christmas tree say and like yeah. be okay to know that it's plugged into something well and, <laughs> and forever I've had like you know even a lamp on an end table beside a couch mm-hmm. it's as if a lot of dps want everything to look as if it's wireless so they like you know you'll tape down the ca- the 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 head the feed from the lamp the lamp feed off of it down the back leg of the end table and then run it under the couch or something till you get to a plug that's maybe if the couch is against a wall against that plug into the wall or you've run power from another way place you don't see it or whatever but it's always this I have like I've forever had this conversation with people and I understand like sloppy and ugly is sloppy and ugly looking. And to be honest, this power cables run very sloppily. Like I would have run it a lot smoother. Sure. But also if you run it a lot smoother and make it look all perfect, then it becomes more obvious that it's a film cable perhaps. But if it's run kind of sloppily, then maybe it's like, oh, somebody just threw this extension cord down to plug it in. And sometimes I think that like when I see this type of thing, I go, oh, that must have been their reasoning. But then I see how like businesses and people that do their own power cable runs it's not like that they run their stuff as clean and as neat as possible and because they have pride in it because it's their ownership of their property they they really they will you know measure 10 times to cut once type of thing you know what i mean and Mm -hmm. they really 
they will have found the perfect instruments in order to make it run perfectly or whatever. Yeah, yeah, is, yeah, is, for sure. Is more often how I see things done. So, um, but I, I guess it was just, it's just, that's a, just a little personal, th- it has nothing to do with I the overall yeah, film I didn't see it. But it, there's a like a full AC cable running from some power off camera right to is, those is things. Is it like a like Super a obvious. like a film AC? Because uh, it's shot in Jordan, I I couldn't tell you right. Oh but right, it, yeah. It looked black with a you know a, a, a fatter end than you would have on potentially a, regular, a hospital grade yeah. cord end on it yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um. So yeah it looked like that at first i didn't i really tried not to like pause and look at it to like talk about it more but i noticed that every single time that frame came up my it's my eye goes right to it but that's That's because i literally am trained to like look for that now because every tp i work for would lose their stuff if they saw that uh they would lose it if they saw something like that in frame that they hadn't noticed although uh, if it if it happens if you see it in a frame I would say it's usually there on purpose or because it was like on a show with like the stuff we work on. Uh, we don't have the time to repatch something major. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes, you know, in the reverse of something, it's in the back of the shot because we didn't have it. They, we, the light was going down. We had 10 minutes to, or 15 minutes to move the cameras for the reverse. We just moved lights into place or whatever. And you might see a pat on and, and I would still hate to do that I, in a perfect world. You repatch it from the other side, et cetera, et cetera. But it happens um, because I guess uh, a little inside filmmaking or whatever, the people that would have to notice that and be okay with it is both, or if there's generally two camera operators, but more on bigger stuff. So all of the camera camera operators, if they see it, would say something. Then I have to see it and be fine with it. Then the DP has to see it and be fine with it. And then the director has to see it and be fine with it. And then generally there's a bunch of network people EPs, floating around, UPMs, like floating around the village to see the monitors and to see the image. And they they will generally say something about it. So there's there's to, a lot of layers between to, the cord getting ha- in frame and the shot cable, making. To have a power cable in frame is to have essentially like somewhere between six to 12 people sign off on it. And that's not including the possibility of spending some money in post to paint it out. Yeah. So if they really hated uh, it. Yeah. 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 So I guess, <laughs> I guess it's all like, uh, and then that again, not, not about this thing. Cause whether it's intentional or not, I don't really care. In this no, thing. Yeah, but... I just noticed it and it, and it, I noticed it because I'm, like I said, I'm trained to notice it. And the fact that I noticed it maybe goes against my overall point, which is that, things plug in and plug things in wherever um but i part of it i noticed it because i was like oh see it doesn't look that bad and i bet you i didn't even see it i literally didn't even notice it and i was like yeah see it doesn't look that bad and whatever like how else would you have plugged that in in the middle of this marble front entrance (laughs) of course um unless it was battery powered or something And, and that's ridiculous and so yeah uh you know and they could have built something that it hid behind like it wouldn't have taken much to hide it i don't think um and maybe it's a matter of this has a six million dollar budget you're in another country and i'm sure six million goes a lot further in jordan than it does in canada but you uh, gotta get people but there. You, and I, how long are, are we stealing that shot in that uh, like it's one that's the only time i think we're in that lobby and, yeah it is, and so yeah. 
and it's it's a one i mean maybe they did coverage and they just left it on the cutting room floor but like you said that's another one of those tableaus right we're in a we're in a certain lens we're seated pretty far back so we can see the whole uh, room or feel the presence and the weight of this room and uh and yeah i think that's i don't know Anyways, that's a long diatribe about <laughs> gaffing. Inside in- in- intel on uh, how the film industry works, I guess. But uh, yeah, and something I didn't see. So thanks for bringing that up. Uh, and then I guess one of the other things I wanted to talk about about the story is um, is the son, uh, the t- torturer son who has three different names throughout the movie. Um, the fact that he's like, he works in... Again, and I'm now going to steal your thing that you keep correcting yourself on, but Montreal at a bus <laughs> depot because I, I, it's got to be one of it's it's either Montreal or Quebec City. It's yeah. a major city, yeah. so um, it's one of the two big ones. I would Trois assume. Rivières. Uh, it it could it. I mean, it could be. I think Trois Rivières is where Denis Villeneuve's from, right? I think. I think. Maybe. And uh, don't quote but, me. But it like. As far as I know, but uh, Trois Rivières, it's close enough to Montreal that like it might it, as well be. Might as yeah. well be. Um, but uh, um, anyway, it um, the the uh, the fact that there was a a man who tortured and killed and w- was like and as described in the movie by other people we meet uh too good at war or lo- falling too much in love with war he had he had a, a craze for war i think they said and also right. he's like a skilled sniper who killed lots of like people including we literally watch him shoot like an eight-year-old in the yeah. head yeah and and then also that's the only time that there's a i guess it's a few times with him when we go to his flashbacks but um that's one when we're not with someone of the marwin family yes is we follow those the the which kids, it, the children. Which it turns out we are with someone of yeah. the Marwan family yeah, because yeah. it's, you know. Yeah. So, but, um, but it, yes, it, yeah, it, that's a really messed up scene too. And and mm-hmm. more to the horrors of war and more to the cycle of abuse and and, and everything. Um, but I did find it interesting that that character at the end of the thing is working, cleaning buses and that thing because it's a really boring job and i remember two the tooth it reminded me of two things but one is um a, a shared podcaster we both love to listen to dan carlin's hardcore yes. history he talks about in one of those um I, I think it's when he does ghosts of the oz front which was his world war Two eastern front um series he talks about um some of the russian women and and german women and some of their contributions to the the war effort and especially with russian women they were fighting on the front lines and that kind of thing and then he was saying you know cut to 70 80 years later and you're seeing an old lady who needs help across the street but in the recesses of her mind she remembers murdering or killing people acts of war essentially and like and we, uh, us, especially in the West, Western white people or whatever, have this like, in, like uh, assumed innocence of some older, of the elderly, of yeah, the elderly, yeah. especially elderly women, I think. And so his whole thing was about how, like the the stuff these people are carrying, this the baggage these war uh, people who have been like involved in war are carrying around with them. And the other thing it made me think of was uh, with the like I don't know. Uh, cause it, 
again, it was a war that started before you were born. But um, the the Bosnian Serbian you, former Yugoslavia falling apart thing, yeah, in late, yeah, like in the early nineties. Um, so there was like a big conflict there, and a genocide. I was born in the nineties. Yeah, so for, I think it's ninety two to ninety five or something okay, that it runs. Right. So I think you're right in the middle there, um, born wise. Uh, but uh, so they caught a, caught and tried a bunch of the leaders of of this genocide for war crimes. Um, but a bunch of them escaped for various amounts of time and fled persecution for various amounts of time. One of which was a man named uh, Radovan uh, Karadic, who was like the vice president, uh, like Slobodan Milosevic, I think was the... The name sounds super familiar. Yeah, because he he's a war criminal that was on the loose for most of our lives, or mm-hmm. my life. Um, and then he was caught in 2008, and they found him in... Uh, in Belgrade, so like in the region where he committed war crimes and genocide, and he didn't have a beard or anything, he had changed his name, and he was working as a, and he had previous, he was a like trained psychologist earlier in his life, um, uh, but he was working now as a doctor of alternative medicine and like worked at like a, a thing that sold crystals and various things like like stuff what? like that, and he had just been living there, so from like. He evaded captivity in 95, and they found him in 2008. So for 13 years, he had been... A homeopathic medicine and a he, purveyor of. A purveyor of home- <laughs> homeopathy. <laughs> That's... <laughs> and, uh, and, like, and, but like, and I don't mean that as, like, of, uh, like you know, a, a war criminal now working as a doctor isn't the point. It's that it's a mundane doctor. Like, it's yeah. a, like, boring, stupid thing. And, like... The locals knew him, knew him by his assumed, like, his nom de plume or whatever. But, like, here he is, this war criminal that's also the guy selling you ginkgo biloba for your memory or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, I don't know, like, I just felt that was another thing that rang true about this. And also that whole um, chain of violence thing is, like, and I'm making a bunch of assumptions, but about her son before getting these letters, living in Canada working in Quebec or whatever, if he was to start a family here, I could see him being a man who would like beat his wife and stuff because violence is the answer to most of the action he's ever occurred that have occurred in his life. I mean, he's, he's every step of his life is literally being torn from one violent situation to another. And he got out of it using violence. So yeah. And he's, and he's very, and he he appears to be very much in hiding. I mean, he has a different name Mm -hmm. and all this stuff. Um, And actually it's why I, 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 the one thing I did bump on was his reaction to his mother at the pool is either he's so confident in hiding or but like a woman who has somewhat middle eastern features staring at you oddly one day in public and all, and you barely react you like a like a glance over your shoulder kind like of even thing. if he didn't openly recognize her yeah it should have he it should have clicked that maybe on, like sh- i tortured a bunch of prisoners yeah and may, yeah and it like listen and i don't i don't i don't think he should have connected the moment to his mom or no, anything no, no, like no. that but i do know that he knows he was a war criminal and he knows that other people know him his face so i I, and i think that the biggest thing there is that it is it is for the story which is that she walks away thinking he didn't recognize her and maybe he's just you know to start uh uh uh, uh, hypothesizing you know putting whatever he he perhaps he 
he has gotten very good at hiding those reactions and is able to get to the point of her walking away as an actor of like, oh, why, who are you, you crazy lady? And then she walks away and then he's like, I got to, oh, what's uh, going on? You know? Yeah, uh, very, very much. And like, you're right. He probably is very good at car- carpentalizing. Compartmentalizing? That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> uh, because, uh, um, because, yeah, I, I would assume that anybody who's um, carried out acts of war has to be well, able to do something someone like who's that. carried out acts of war and now spends their days doing something mindless like he would have so much time to think about what he did yeah uh yeah so much time and, while he's scrubbing handles on buses uh, uh, and to a way though um there is something interesting in the in the circle of of like the circles that appear in this story whether it be violence or or otherwise is that the story with his mother starts a bit on that bus, that fateful bus, and at the end he's then cleaning buses. Is There's a, a lot of cyclical elements to the plot there. Yeah, that's a good point. But but it's I think it's all to... to I don't think it's there to go like, look how clever or whatever. I no, think it's, no, no, no. I think it's there to um, all to hold up the theme this one major theme of this story which is the cycle of violence and how at some point we have to stop it and like so growing up the person who i heard talking about the most about this was nelson mandela and it's because uh, like that was his whole thing was because when he was coming out of prison and had been thrown in there as a terrorist and stuff um was that he and his backers at least in all of the biopics and various things I've seen, his backers were very against him being nonviolent and non repercussions against the, the abusers and the colonizers and all that kind of thing. But his whole thing was that violence begets more violence. And that if we, when we take power, we do the same things they did, then we are no better than they are. They were. And the whole thing we're trying to do is change the way we, interact in the society or whatever well and i mean history is full of examples of that of like of like leaders who initially fight for something because they're they're under the boot and they're the ones who are being the violence being done to and then when they finally take power and regain their control of their lives they know no other way but to continue doing that but then it just creates another group of people that are then gonna feel that way and to take it out of like mesopotamia and like the middle east and stuff to take it out of there and put it into the context there's the two legendary families of the hatfields and the mccoys in the state yeah yeah and as far as i know as legend has it that whole thing started between a like two of the next generation loved each other and the families were against the two people getting together um for i what business or otherwise reasons or whatever why for whatever reasons you're against a wedding um and it, there might have been more things to it but i was pretty sure that like that relationship was the inciting incident to families that essentially did everything they could to destroy each other for countless generations after that to the point i think that the American government eventually essentially got involved or like the state government, like the state officials had to get involved mm-hmm. 
because these two families were causing so much damage uh, to the greater community. I mean, I don't know much about the story. I've heard them referenced, but I don't know much. Well, so. yeah, and it and it's referenced just as like a blood feud, right? Yeah, That's exactly. How it, it comes yeah. up in conversations as like, oh, two irreconcilable groups of people the, the reprising Cap- their Montague's Capulets, yeah. Hatfields, McCoys. Like this, it's this, and it's it's uh, and I and it's something that I've never like I've never. Like, I mean, thank goodness my parents never told me to hate anybody growing up. They never went, they're people you shouldn't like. Yeah. You yeah, shouldn't yeah. associate with those people. Um, I, at least if they gave me those lessons, I've long forgotten them. <laughs> so, <laughs> so thank goodness. But uh, I don't think they, did, they ever told me anything like that. And uh, so I don't know, like, I don't really understand this. And And we're fortunate enough, I think both of us, to not have been put in situations where um something's been done to us that in at least in my head i've never had something done to me that was irreconcilable to a point where like sure i've had my conflicts and sure i've had people treat me badly in different situations but it's never been a sort of situation where i've felt so much anger that i couldn't not respond right or yeah or that yeah that certainly that uh, yeah i've and i've never had any sort of level of violence perpetrated on me that yeah. that i felt that i needed like i've had violence perpetrated on me in which i felt like i needed to respond with violence but that's essentially being a teenage boy at a certain point um uh but you know as any and any sort of level of maturity i yeah i've never had anything that's happened to me that i've been like for the rest of my life if i see or see someone of that creed or color or family or whatever that i need to either destroy them or run the other way or whatever like so i don't i truly don't understand like generational hate the way some people do um but it but i do understand that it it exists i i i think that it is like i think pain and trauma they're like slightly transferable i like it we are breaching two hours here though uh so i wonder if we should maybe get around to closing remarks yeah absolutely i um yeah uh did you have anything final you wanted to say about story or denny or any of the actors i feel like we've traversed a decent amount of ground i don't know that there's anything i can add that would be um discussable in this closing segment other than i will say that it was again it was an extremely powerful movie i walked away from it with my mind racing and all three times i watched it this week and i think that it's a movie that's going to stick with me for a really long time in a really good sort of way uh i think it's I think I'm glad we we picked it. I'm glad we watched it. Yeah, yeah. I I, I guess everything I wanted to say in conclusion will be said when we do our questions. Um, so I, I essentially most of the stuff that I've written down, I said kind of roughly. So once again, I've said everything I wanted to say, just not necessarily <laughs> how I wanted to say it. Um, but yeah. So uh, Ryan, uh, is this is this a rewatchable film for you? A hundred percent. It, uh, I have and will continue. And, um, it's also going to springboard me to, like I said at the beginning, increasing my, um, diligence in trying to track down the Villeneuve movies I have not yet seen, um, which is slowly getting smaller and smaller, but the harder ones to find are harder ones to find. But, uh, uh, yeah, it is a hundred percent rewatchable. Yeah. I, fully agree um even the fact that it that there is so much pain involved and like i'll say this 
if you are uh, like a person of Lebanese descent and like and had family members that went through these atrocities, perhaps it's not a multi-watch film for you. It's probably a one-time watch, but because you have that connection with the pain that we're seeing on camera, more more connection to that pain, it might not be an easy movie for you to watch more than once. Not that I think it's an easy movie for anybody to watch. But I do believe for, for myself, it'll be a, a f- film I'll return to and rewatch because of how powerful it is and because of uh, Mr. Villeneuve, essentially. His his creative license telling this story is, is uh, unmatched, unrivaled at the moment to me. And so just to watch his presence on screen, I will By creative license, I assume you mean uh, creative voice? Yeah, yes, sure. Uh, but also, I think... There, I mean, with this story coming from an adapted thing, I think he. Okay, took, yeah, fair enough. But yeah. It, but yeah, I do. His artist stamp is on it, yeah, and it yeah. it makes it that much better for it. Yeah. Um. Yes. Uh. Yeah. For sure. Uh. Now, so um, I think I know our answer to this, but do you think you need to be in a particular mood to watch this? This might be the first time I will definitively say yes. I always dance around this because I don't feel like I ever need to be. But I think this is a movie that even for myself, like it's it's got a lot of violence. It's got a lot of really dark subject matter, a lot of really painful, powerful subject matter that is really important and that needs to be talked about, but is not necessarily the easiest to always just throw on and watch. Yeah, I had a professor in university, an English professor that used to talk about the books he would read before bed. And he used, he read two hours every night before bed. And the first hour he would read, um, he would read what he called great literature. And then, um, and then the second hour he would re- like he would read what he called um, good but easy literature. Mm. And so, uh, and he and he, the way he always described it was a, as it was his meal and his dessert. <laughs> I like that a lot. And um and so he would read like he what he was implying was he like to to fall asleep or to like the like to rest his brain a little near the end of the night. He would he would watch something that maybe had less substance and less like you didn't have to put your work boots on to read it type of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Um whereas the stuff that came before that was perhaps would challenge your mind and would challenge uh, the way you perceive certain things or whatever uh, would be a challenge period and um, and I th- so this movie is that I think this movie is this movie's a meal this movie's one you need to put your work boots on to watch a little bit this one it's because of the subject matter first of all but second of all be- just because of the artistic na- nature of its presentation i think it does require more attention um than some of the other movies we've discussed and i tr- yeah I, I think if you're ready to do if you're in the mood to do some do some work and to think about your place in the world or whatever <laughs> um then i think yeah this movie then you're in the right mindset to watch this movie but if you're in the movie for something mindless and that you only have to half pay attention to while you are on various socials or whatever, then this isn't the movie for that time, that brain space. Um, Finally, um, is this a movie you would seek out? And if 
if it's challenging to find, as we've discussed, some of his other movies are, uh, Mr. Villeneuve's other movies. Um, would you would you tell someone to seek it out as well? Would you? I already have. I just had a conversation two days ago with somebody where I told them to track it down. Uh, so yes, and it is kind of tough to find it's despite being one of his more well-known movies and despite being more recent um it's only i think the only places i could find it online that was, it was accessible were rental through youtube and rental through google play uh, i'm sure you can go on somewhere and order a copy but i've never just seen it on the shelf of a walmart or an hmv or whatever you know it's it's not easy to locate but i think that it's worth it to do so when it came out it was very i found it very easy accessible to find it uh and i've told you this story off mic but i'll say on mic uh that i did buy a copy and didn't pay too much attention other than seeing the one sheet on the front and bought it and it turns out the copy i bought here in canada didn't have any english subtitles it was just a french version and i bought (laughs) and so then i had to then uh, and I didn't put it on right away because it was described as dark and hard to watch and all that. And then so I probably owned it for a year or two before I finally put it in the DVD player. Uh, and then lo and behold, it has no English subtitles. So then I had to spend time tracking down a version with English subtitles to which I did eventually purchase. But again, then wasn't in the mood to watch it. And then by the time I went got around to watching it, I had moved an apartment or something. And when I did that, I called the DVD collection little and then noticed I had two copies of Incendie and said, oh, I should, of course, give one of these away to a friend, forgetting why I owned two copies. And then I gave away the one with the English subtitles. So uh, when I finally went to watch it again shortly after that, I then, of course, couldn't. Uh, I mean, I understand french a little bit but when you're trying to deal with something this heavy i um i didn't want to rely on french subtitles and my knowledge of the language yeah yeah so yeah so i did the same i rented this on on youtube um and but i do i vow to own a copy of this that i can with my stupid uh, monolingual self will uh will learn and and watch um but yeah, yeah, I'm it... the worst Canadian. I don't speak a lick of French. I know a couple of words, but I had a horrible French teacher in grade six, and I never took French again after that. So fair, but no. So uh, and to to your to what you've mentioned, and we both kind of mentioned finding um, Polytechnique and Maelstrom specifically is very difficult. Uh, but but they, it will happen. Yeah, and and uh, we both will will maybe do them on these in a future Canadian. I was thinking we might have to. In fact, I would do all of his movies. As oh, a hundred percent. Well, I don't know if you can argue for Blade Runner or Blade Sakaar. Runner starring a Canadian, directed by that, a Canadian. I guess, yeah, all right. That's by a you know Canadian. what? I will happily call Blade Runner twenty forty nine a Canadian movie. I'm calling it happily. A, I'm calling it a Canadian movie. <laughs> perhaps one of the most successful of all time. Uh, yeah. So, um, so yeah. I too. This is a definite seeker for me. You do have to be in a mood. I would rewatch it. I think you you align up with those as well. So Ryan, what would you rate this movie? Oh gosh. Um. You know, I would have to give it 45 detailed letters, I think. Detailed? Wow, okay. So, I mean, the word count in that is 
so much more than 45 regular letters yeah yeah it's like we're talking like pages man uh wow that's that's a lot uh myself um yeah uh probably somewhere around 17 pots of lebanese tea oh yeah oh yeah yeah that's that's skyrocketing like it's a huge yeah, rating yeah that, yeah that good shit i don't <laughs> You got to get that good shit, that good Lebanese tea, let me tell you what. Well, as always, there were spoilers in this episode, so if you don't want the movie to be spoiled, and like I said at the beginning, it will probably wreck the experience for you, unless you're the kind of person who spoils movies for yourself on purpose because you can't deal with it. I had a conversation with someone about that earlier, and it drove me wild that that was a thing, but anyways, uh, watch the movie first. If you uh, want to get in touch with us or you're looking to find out what's coming next, you can find us on Instagram at Cinematics Podcast or on Twitter at Cinematics Cast. So until next week, thank you guys very much for listening, and we'll see you later. Bye.